show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the first ever <laughs> Dr. Crow's Bird Show. I am joined today by my avian co-host, Luca. He is a blue and gold macaw. <laughs> yes, you are. Today, we're going to be kicking off the series with a topic very close to my heart, and that is crows. Crows are one of the most common corvids. Corvids include a bird family with jays, ravens, magpies, um, but crows are by far the most plentiful. They're found pretty much all over the world and in every kind of habitat. Crows are medium-sized and they tend to congregate in really large flocks, which, as you may have heard, are called murders. It's a little bit of a sinister name. So uh, that's an overview about crows. Let's move on to the flocking news. The flocking news. So this is a story that comes out of the Boston Globe. Uh, it was published on February 17th, and the title is, Thousands of Crows Have Descended on Lawrence, and No One Knows Why. So basically, <laughs> there's a city in Lawrence, Massachusetts, where about 20,000 crows have been flocking um, under a highway overpass. So here's a quote uh, from the news article. They arrive every evening by the thousands, descending upon a quiet stretch of riverbank near a noisy highway overpass. Crows resting on tree branches. Crows circling high above the Merrimack River. Crows relieving themselves on the footpaths near the water. It is like something Alfred Hitchcock would have dreamt up, some residents say, except that it is real. And as those who have stumbled upon the bird's bizarre nightly roosting ritual can attest, somehow even stranger than it sounds. So something that's really cool about this story uh, and unique to the town of Lawrence as opposed to other places that have been infested with birds, like crows, and I use the word infested intentionally because a lot of people see them as nuisances. They don't like the poop, they don't like uh, the sound of them cawing every morning, uh, waking them up early on the weekend, and all that kind of thing. Plus, crows can tend to get a little bit territorial during the spring. So it seems like there's a lot of um, conflict that can happen when crows uh, are interacting with humans, which tends to happen a lot since crows are one of those species that tends to thrive in human manipulated habitats. Like, you know, they like a good rubbish bin, for example. A couple years ago, an example of this, uh, where a township was fairly annoyed by crows, comes out of Albany, New York, um, where they used a combination of pyrotechnics, spotlights, <laughs> lasers, and recorded crow distress calls in order to try to scare away some flocks of crows. But in contrast, in Lawrence, Massachusetts, uh, they've really come to embrace the crows. So not only are local businesses like bars um, and museums getting crow-inspired drinks and art, uh, there's also an advocate who's a local chaplain there um, who takes a lot of photos of the crows and has made um, their roost near the highway actually in the town somewhat famous. So shout out and kudos to Lawrence, Massachusetts for embracing their 20,000 strong uh, roost murder of crows. <laughs> now we're gonna move on to bird tales. Bird tales. Our first crow bird tale 
is about mask studies. So there's a famous crow researcher. His name is John Marsluff. He's at the University of Washington, uh, which is near Seattle. And uh, he's been doing these crow studies for a number of years, like more than 20 years. Um, and one of the things that he noticed was the crows seemed to recognize the researchers. So he wanted to take this a step further. And he actually devised an experiment where they had a couple different types of masks. They had what they called the dangerous masks and then what they called the neutral masks. So the dangerous masks, initially they used a, a caveman mask um, and for the, the neutral mask. They actually did a, a mask of Dick Cheney. Uh, so this gives you an idea <laughs> to when these experiments were first taking place. Um, so basically the people in the dangerous masks uh, would go ahead and trap the crows and basically uh, harass them. Turned out that uh, the crows would actually recognize the people in the caveman dangerous mask uh, and would end up, you know, yelling basically at them every time they would see them uh, just walking through uh, the University of Washington campus. So they actually expanded the study. Uh, into uh, the city of Seattle and also in uh, like farmlands and stuff surrounding the city and they found the same behavior happen they would always yell at the person in the dangerous mask but also they would stay their distance further away in the country than they would in the city in the city they would scream at them like from a foot away because generally there's less fear from human retaliation for crows that are in the city uh, versus crows in the country, and those would still yell at the people in the dangerous mask, but they would yell at them from further away in the trees. So that's something really interesting about crows. So one last thing about the crow studies before we move on to our next bird tale <laughs> is that more crows would yell at the researchers than were initially uh, trapped by the people in the dangerous masks. And not only that, but when they took a break, um, even sometimes a very long break, like several years break from wearing the masks, the crows would basically not only remember, but would have told their friends. So um, what this tells us is something really cool about communication, which is not only do they uh, teach each other about dangerous individuals uh, that are potentially uh, hanging around, they also have some way of describing to each other our faces in order to uh, warn each other about potentially dangerous humans. <laughs> so I thought that that was an especially fascinating concept. Our second bird tale today <laughs> involves Canuck, the famous Canadian crow. So a lot of people are already familiar with Canuck's story, uh, but just a little recap. Canuck was born about four years ago, um, and he was uh, an orphaned crow, so he was raised by a young uh, person in East Vancouver, Canada, uh, but ended up really gravitating towards uh, one of the um, people who also lived in that neighborhood named Sean Bergman. So Sean Bergman actually uh, has made a film called Canuck and I. It's a pretty short film. I'll leave a link to it um, in today's description. It's a fascinating look at their relationship um, and how it evolved over time. And Canuck ended up actually getting quite the reputation around Vancouver. 
So not only was he like super friendly to everyone because uh, he'd been raised by people. So, you know, that helped. Um, but also he would show up at local like McDonald's and places like that. He made friends with his local postal worker. He really made an impression on people in the town of Vancouver. Um, so Canuck uh, ended up grabbing headlines a couple years ago when there was a crime scene uh, and he actually ended up stealing the knife from the crime scene, I guess, because he was fascinated by the fact it was a shiny object. And yeah, he could have compromised the entire investigation. So luckily it all turned out okay. But um, that's how he gained his notoriety um, in terms of tampering with police evidence. It's a little bit of a, a, a sad turn in Canuck's story, which is um, this last fall, Canuck went missing. So over the last couple years, he's made a, a mate named Cassier. Um, and she and he have made nests over the past couple years and actually have um, had a few chicks in those nests. So uh, they've been settling into domestic life, and unfortunately, uh, just as they were really kind of trying to find their groove, seemingly they did, but then he was missing, and Cassier could be seen all around Vancouver, um, really just like crying out for him. It was a really sad situation. So um, there's a lot of conspiracy theories online about what happened to Canuck? There's some people that are saying that he was actually kidnapped. Uh, there was one report that he was killed, I believe, by a dog in someone's front yard. Uh, but it still remains a mystery because there's been no photographs of him alive or deceased. Uh, so therefore, no proof as to what actually happened. And there's actually still a $10,000 reward uh, out there for people that could give any information about Canuck's whereabouts. Uh, so I encourage you to maybe even follow online because uh, there are updates from Sean Bergman every now and then. Um, and he still is following the story of Cassier. Crows do mate for life, uh, but she will most likely, um, at least according to um, John Marsluff uh, at the University of Washington, find a new mate someday, somehow, someday. Maybe not quite as handsome as Canuck, but what are you going to do? So uh, anyway, keep your eyes out if you do live, especially near Vancouver, Canada, because uh, there's a crow out there. He's very unique in that he has a zip tie on one leg. So if you see a crow with an orangish zip tie stuck to his leg, you may want to let Sean Bergman know and get yourself $10,000 in the process. That That'd be a happy ending for everyone. Huh, Luca? Okay, we're going to close it out today with a bird of advice. A bird of advice. So today's bird of advice has to do with how to tell the difference between a raven and a crow. Do you know how to tell a difference, Luca? I've seen you yelling at ravens in the yard sometimes. So the main way is to look at who the bird is with. So is it a big group of birds? Is it just two that are together? Uh, ravens tend to be more solitary or just found in pairs, 
uh, versus crows who are super social and found in those giant flocks like we talked about in Lawrence, Massachusetts. Uh, another way that you can tell the difference is by the sound that they make. So crows make more of a caca, caca, whereas <laughs> ravens do more of a croaking sound, more like raw, 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 almost like a frog. So that's another way that you can tell just from listening. Now the final way that you can tell, other than the fact that ravens are usually slightly bigger than crows, is by their tail shape. So if you see them flying overhead, they have like a angular, um, even like a triangle shaped tail. That's most likely a raven. And the crows is easy to remember because theirs is actually more C-shaped. It's a more rounded tail. So that's how you can tell the difference between ravens and crows. Thank you so much for joining us today at our very first flight of Dr. Crow's Bird Show. I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast, uh, or if you're watching us on YouTube, we really appreciate that as well. And you can also see Luca, uh, which maybe make some of his, <laughs> which maybe, which maybe make some of his moaning uh, less annoying slightly if you could see what he's doing at the time. Uh, so if you have any interest in that, please do look for us on YouTube if you are just listening in podcast form. Um, and we'll be here every Tuesday giving you more bird facts. Thanks for joining us for another flocking good time. We'll see you next week on Dr. Crow's Bird Show. Good job, buddy. Good job. You did so good. Dr. Crow's